Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing. Uh, my name's Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by Neil Morrison. We're sitting in a burrito bar in Barcelona. It's a gorgeous day outside and uh, we've decided to chew over some of the matters from the Grand Prix of Valencia, the last round of the season, uh, and get into some of the hot topics as, you know, a couple of the riders we've seen, Neil, in Moto2 this year, are dipping, even Moto3, are dipping straight into MotoGP testing. Um, straight off the bat, what was your moment from uh, Valencia? Like we said, round 18, the last round of the season, exciting Moto3 race, and of course, a Moto2 title decider. What stood out for you? Yeah, chewing through the action, Adam, just after we've uh, chewed through our burritos, which is uh, quite a nice uh, way to record a podcast, I must say. Uh, we've got some nice music, which you might be able to pick up on in the background as well. It's not a romantic date. I have to um, <laughs> you know, add this uh, important piece of information for our listeners, uh, rather a meeting of convenience, because you're off to do After the Flag today, which means you get to submerge yourself in MetaGP for the last time this year. Do you feel somewhat weary or are you still quite happy to be talking about racing completely emotional that this is the last day there's going to be tears whenever that last bike uh, you know goes into the garage and the, the shutters come down it's over for another year how are we going to survive three months out without it or two months now i i, I think uh it, it's coming a good time yeah i think everyone's ready to disconnect for a little bit we're obviously going to be bringing you lots of uh content through the off season but uh, in terms of traveling in terms of just writing i think uh uh, would yeah, I don't want to comprehend how much, uh, how many words I've written this week alone, but it's been quite a lot. Um, so yeah, I think everyone's ready for a wee holiday, wee break. Um, but with regards to Valencia, yeah, it was it was a great weekend. I think um, the uh, guys like Rossi, Petrucci, even MotoGP made it a big occasion. But we had a great Moto3 race. We had a pretty tense Moto3 championship battle. I think more tense than a lot of us thought it was going to be. Um, but in the end, you know, Remy Gardner. Winning the championship was, um, well, you've said many times that it, he's the people's champion this year. <laughs> now he's the... I think uh, Dave actually said that, not me. Now he's the, the real champion, the actual champion, even though Ralph Fernandez uh, got the much-vaunted uh, moral championship victory, which uh, is so important these days for riders. <laughs> <laughs> not said with any kind of uh, smile on his face or hint of cynicism there. Um, for me, Neil, I thought um, the moment of the Grand Prix uh, was, you know, Tetsuya Nagashima really giving Remy Gardner a hounding for that position. I mean, at one point, like we said on the main show, he was in 10th. Uh, he needed to finish, I think, 12th. And 13th. 13th. 13th, okay. And with Raul to win the race, to, to lose the championship. You know, only one week after that comprehensive victory in Portugal. So it was close. Um, I mean, we were all talking about Danny Kent um, and the same kind of uh, apparition we saw, you know, Moto3 in Valencia a few years ago. And um, luckily it didn't come to pass. I mean, Remy obviously was riding her, uh, a lot of pressure. I mean, he looked kind of gaunt and pale. I mean, I thought the same thing as well in the press conference. You know, he looked like a guy who had been through, you know, pretty much um, the whole mangle in terms of pressure and emotion and, and physical discomfort throughout the, the, the week, uh, but he delivered. So um, it was quite good to see Nagashima keeping him honest, keeping him on his toes. Um, there were times where he thought, is he going to buck under the pressure? Is there going to be a mistake? But um, he brought it home. And, uh, you know, he didn't win as many races as Fernandez, five as opposed to eight, but I think, you know, he had the podium consistency and uh, you know that's that's under rights of championship, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's what he said. It was it was all down to picking up points on those days when he wasn't strong. He had one DNF all year, aside from that race in Valencia, and the DNF in uh, in Texas. He was inside the top seven in every race. Um, Twelve podiums, I think, across the year. It was like a really consistent campaign. Um, so yeah, it was good. Um, I would say my 
moment of the weekend was uh, in the Moto2 and Moto3 class. It had to be the coming together on the final lap between Foggia and uh, Pedro Acosta um, because we had all been crying out for a bit of a bit of a clash between these two guys they'd clearly been head and shoulders above the rest of the guys in Moto3 this year and uh, well for the second time in two weeks we basically had them fronting up to each other and uh, Foggy's move a little cheeky I would say um, took Acosta down got himself a three second penalty I think which put him outside the top ten um, and just after a whole strange weekend of his team Leopard coming out with strange conspiracy theories as to why he got taken out by Darren Binder in the previous weekend. It just <laughs> added to a strange kind of, um, I don't know, like a persecution kind of complex that um, maybe, I don't know, maybe that was affecting uh, Foggia in some way. Um, but it was it was entertaining to watch. And the only kind of sad thing, I think, is that uh, those two guys aren't going to be in the same class next year because it has all the hallmarks of a, a beautiful rivalry. Do you think um, Acosta maybe rode some of his luck during the year? I mean, that was his first time he's been kind of knocked off or he's had, he's felt the, like, I don't want to use the word dark side, but the, the, the extreme of misfortune when it comes to racing in a pack in Moto3. I guess so, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if we talk about Texas, then, you know, that's the most vivid example. But in terms of, you know, being for the result on the last lap and going for the bigger prize, then, you know, this is the first time where he really lucked out. Uh, yes, I would say so. He lucked out here. Valencia. But surely he got hit off though, did he not? That's what I mean. He was a misfortune of, you know, well, he was a victim of the misfortune of right. group dynamics, which yeah. you usually see in Moto3. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, some, somebody always comes a cropper, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I guess there was a few occasions like in Hareth where uh, Anju took down Binder and Jamal Massey just behind him. Um, but part of me thinks that a lot of that, or some of that is, is kind of cleverness and, and knowing where to put yourself in, in certain situations that, uh, mean you're not going to get taken out. Um, I guess he got fortunate. The obvious one, obviously, being Texas, as you mentioned, uh, kind of miraculous that he was able to yeah. get up after that. Never mind, you know, race and go on to win the championship. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was juicy, and he was riding like a, with a real swagger in that race. Anytime someone got to the front, he was immediately under them. One or two moves, I would say, that were questionable on his part. There was a bit where he cut across. I think it was Anju going into the first turn where. He, could have so easily taken his front tire away. A wee bit too much swagger, perhaps, from Pedro on that occasion. But you know, after what he's what he's been through, what he's achieved this year, you know, which what kind of seventeen-year-old wouldn't uh, have their chest puffed out? It was um, quite tasty at one moment because you had Acosta walking towards you know Park Ferme, um, and then also Foggia going down to congratulate Xavi Artigas on his first Grand Prix win. So there was kind of a, I think the the TV director, I mean, we could also see it from the media center, but the TV director was also kind of looking, thinking, oh, is there going to be some sort of confrontation here? But it never materialized. I think the teams kind of separated the riders because Jamma Masio, you know, making third place, um, I think he confirmed was fifth in the championship or fourth. The fourth? Okay, it was a top four finish. So, um, yeah, there was a, a nice sort of backdrop of... Uh, maybe agitation and you know frosty relationships there for motor three um it's always good when the racing is accompanied by that sort of narrative yeah bit niggle we all love that <laughs> <laughs> um one of the questions we'll get tucked into over the winter when we you know kind of look back at the season but importantly look forward to the next season is whether we think pedro costa is gonna do a ralph Fernandez in motor two um you know whether he'll struggle um you know whether his character will actually help him in that class 
So if you're listening to the show and you've got some thoughts or ideas, then drop us a line on Twitter. Um, we'll be chewing into that in the, in the coming follow-up shows, like I mentioned, during the winter period, but uh, certainly one to think about. If you're Ralph Hernandez, uh, you think that Pedro's going to need a lot of luck in Moto2. Did you see his uh, Instagram comment last night? No. Something along the lines of uh, the Tech3 team posted a photo of Raul and Remy posing in the MotoGP leathers and Raul looking very ashen-faced and serious as he always seems to and Pedro left him a comment saying smile just one time smile and uh, Raul <laughs> replied saying focus on Moto2 and good luck you're going to need it <laughs> I think there's a big uh, public relations um, training school needed for the Fernandez camp um, it's, it's not looking too good now I mean let's just quickly talk about that because yeah they're uh, not winning friends are they yes I mean there was an interview I think it was in uh, Motorsports uh, on the Spanish version motorsport.com um, in which uh, Ralph Fernandez made a number of claims. Um, one that the, he, well, basically to, to summarize, uh, he didn't feel he had the required or the experience help from the team to push for a championship. Um, stones were put in his way. I think he used that kind of allegory. Uh, he also spoke of um, a hint of favoritism, perhaps, towards Jeremy Gardner. Uh, and there was, let's, let's admit, there was a bit of, kind of mental umbrage of the way that the championship had gone for him and he had been treated um, of course with any interview Neil you have to kind of take it in the context that it was delivered I mean he could have been talking to an old buddy some of the stuff possibly might have been off the record uh, you know the, the relationship between the interview and interviewee is always pertinent in these cases but uh, my question is do you think he's gone too far do you think there's uh, the sour grapes are you know firmly squashed on his face yes I guess so. Um, some pretty ridiculous claims, like the the team had put, as you say, some stones in the way of him becoming champion. Um, head audit Gardner said, you know, he's been walking around saying that he was the more intelligent guy this year, even though he's had six years of experience in the class. And he was like, no, he's not been the most intelligent. He's the one that had less obstacles put in his way. And I, I just don't see that happening. I don't see Akiyo doing things like that what I what I read into it is that he may, might have been a little bit annoyed that no one had asked him to kind of slow down Mizano because in that race Remy was having a terrible time Raul hit the front and he didn't need to be pushing at the level or the speed he was you know he could have taken second place that day and he would have come away leading the championship I'm not sure whether he's referring to that race that particular race that his team didn't signal him or there was no kind of communication maybe on his dashboard saying second okay or you know slow or relax from what i could read yesterday maybe he's intimating that that is what what has upset him but then why uh, focus on that why not look also at saxon ring and silverstone exactly yeah yeah and it's just another strange incident where there's controversy aggro we've had situations this year where right first of all he had signed it he had a two-year deal to stay with KTM in Moto2. He was talking with Yamaha. KTM then signed him up to go to MotoGP. So he signed a second deal with KTM to go to MotoGP next year. After the summer break, he was still talking to Yamaha. That's weird. <laughs> and he was approached by Aprilia. Yeah. yeah. And well, unnecessary. Like, so there's that, that happened. And then there's the whole controversy around Adrian Fernandez not getting a seat and Raul not being happy with that. And there being lots of rumors around the... What the, the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix that he might be considering trying to break his contract. 
I know this. It's just, I mean, he's very lucky that he is as fast as he is. Um, because, you know, when you're as good as he is, factories put up with this. They say, well, you know, it's it's, <laughs> it's part, of the, part of the package, isn't it? Are we seeing the arrival of the second Iannone? <laughs> yeah, I think he's smarter than Iannone. Although it, what I've just said might not seem that it's that smart. But I think on the bike and, you know, Iannone was just like an incredible talent. He's a lot more consistent than Iannone is. Um, but I don't know. I don't know whether it's it's... I don't really know Raul, I don't know his family, but you wonder whether it's advice he's getting from maybe his father or something. It does seem it, to have a bit of an entourage. It's it's weird, yeah. And someone told me he's got four managers. <laughs> someone that someone that is kind of close to KTM told me that he has like kind of four managers advising him in some capacity, which seems weird and excessive. I think um, there's a connection to Red Bull as well somewhere in there. Yeah. I remember seeing him um, with his brother and a couple of people in the uh, motocross Grand Prix in Madrid this summer, well, a few weeks ago, in fact. Um, you know, I mean, he's arguably be acting like the superstar. You could rightfully say he is a superstar. I mean, to break he Mark Marcus's record in Moto2 is quite something. I mean, there is It wasn't no just in Moto2. Uh, in the intermediate class in history, no rookie has ever won eight races, you know. Wow. And, I mean, a couple of guys, Spencer, I think... Um, Kaczynski, Marquez, Pedroza won seven in their rookie season. He won eight. I mean, what he did last this year was remarkable. What about people that might point the finger and say, well, he had the best setup, the best team? I mean, we're looking at two riders, Neil, that have been in Akiyayo's team for, well, Fernandez was there for two years and Gardner was there just for one year. And actually, we got some words from Aki because we caught up with him, didn't we, after the race on Sunday where he spoke in refreshing detail about how Remy Gardner changed his mindset to win the World Championship. But you know, we're talking about two riders and a setup, a collection of mechanics that apparently Fernandez says was not really experienced enough to go for the top prize, um, which, oddly enough, Augusto Fernandez is banking on taking him to the championship next year. But these two riders finished 1-2 in any particular order seven times from 18 rounds. I mean, it was a, a crazy amount of um, consistency. I think it was only two podiums from the whole season that didn't have a rebel Casey Mayo bike on in the top three or, you know, squirt in champagne. So, you know, Fernandez is, is shown he has the capability. He's shown he had the one lap speed in Moto3. He never really mastered the race craft to, to burst through the pack in the last two laps, did he, in Moto3. But Moto2, he's been on it. And you wonder, you know, like you sort of hint at, what's the chemistry going to be like at Tech3? I can't see Hervé Poncheral really um, sitting down and take, dealing with any histrionics or dramas. He just doesn't look like he wants to be there. That's the thing. And it, it, it's like he's trying to make it as clear to the world as possible that he is at KTM MotoGP against his against his wishes. He's being held captive to a contract that he didn't want to be part of. And it's like, Raul, mate, you signed that contract over the summer. So what are you doing? Maybe uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a MotoGP seat and that's supposed to be one of the most exciting moments of your career. The first time you step on a, a MotoGP machine, speaking to Simon Crafar, he still gets emotional when he talks about the first time he sat in the 500. Like, genuinely nearly starts crying <laughs> because it, it was the it was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream you know and Simon, for, you big <laughs> exactly and Raul's just like you know yeah whatever I'm here uh, I mean he's he's blindingly fast but he's not winning himself any fans I don't think at the moment 
It's uh, one of those guys who seems to scrape away the periphery of being a racer and just concentrate on the job, which is admirable in itself. But there is a, you know, I think when you get to the premier class and he's going to be introduced to regular media debriefs, he's going to be thrown some awkward questions, which I think he's already had mm. um, in Hareth. And, you know, if you're going to be truculent, then you're going to lose friends fast. And I don't think, as you can see in the case of perhaps Ika Likawana, a totally different character, Okay, admittedly, he came into MotoGP with a far different track record. Uh, you know, you don't get a great deal of time. I mean, unless you have a particular kind of passport, you know, the old passport issue. Somebody like Takanakagami, who's had, you know, more than half a decade of getting used to MotoGP, yet to finish on the podium. You think Ralph Fernandez really has a clock running on him because there is another Fernandez in Moto2 coming up. There's a Costa coming up. There's, you know, take, take your, your pick from like a half a dozen teenagers that are pushing in Moto3 to Moto2. So I don't think you can afford to be too much of an asshole. Yeah, I think he's so good that he maybe can. I don't know. I just have a feeling that Raul is going to go right the way to the, the very top. And therefore, he can act how he wants, which is, you know, as unfortunate as that is, I, I do think that that's kind of the situation. And he knows that. And he's just pushing the boundaries of what he can do. But I just find it perplexing. I mean, what are KTM management thinking? They've bent over backwards for him repeatedly. And, okay, you're getting all this interest from MotoGP factories. Here's a MotoGP contract. Okay, you're pissed off that we haven't found your brother a seat. Here's a seat for your brother in a really good team, in, in the team that you're going to be riding in. Yeah. Like, come on. They've moved mountains for, for, for his demands. Maybe so, it's just a contract thing. Maybe he thinks I'm in MotoGP. I should be being paid like a MotoGP rider. But as we know, that's, um, you know, you go to the heights of Mark Marquez, but then you also you, you go down to the depths of, uh, say, a rider who brings money into a team. So it's a real, it's not like a, you know, a, mi a minimum wage in MotoGP, is there? <laughs> so. Slightly perplexing. But, um, you know, he, uh, he rode brilliantly on Sunday, um, managed the race well tried to unsettle Remy without going overboard um, followed him in practice ghosted him past him you know, let him overtake sussed him out just maybe put him under a little bit of pressure and then in the race he obviously got to the front very I think he started fifth was first by the second lap and then started kind of playing with the, the pace you know and he was allowing people to pass him passing him straight away trying to bunch the pack up together. He admitted to this afterwards, yeah. uh, kind of like Lorenzo did in, in 2013 um, when he was trying to get Marquez off the off the podium. And um, for a while it was working because the pack was so bunched together that I guess there was 15 guys there and Remy was sort of in the middle and there was three or four guys behind him that looked kind of, they could have, like like they could have overtaken him. But um, eventually Di Antonio got to the front, made a bit of a break and Raul having to, win the race you know had no other choice but to to go after him um so he played it cute you know it was it was interesting to see that um but do you think but, gardner would have had something in the pocket i mean he showed that he i mean okay he chose the harder retire in Porta Mount to take that victory and it was the correct choice even though he was hurting i mean if he if he dropped back to 12th 13th and he saw that fernandez was ahead i mean he, he admitted afterwards as well in his press conference that he was controlling the race controlling the position he saw the pack ahead and thought right i'm not going to get involved in that um and then just rode his race and, and banked the points yeah i think he had a little bit in reserve he was fastest on friday he was pretty fast in fp3 warm and worn up warning ugh. morning warm-up performance was relatively strong i think remy had the pace to be top five really 
kind of without any without any drama. But he admitted afterwards he saw a lot of overtakes going on up ahead, and he just thought, I don't want to be part of that. I need to just bring this home. So, you know, you've got two broken ribs or three broken ribs, as it might be. You know, you, I think that you're, <laughs> you're you're inclined to think like that, right? Like, uh, no, have we had like a bit of a golden wave of talent coming up for Moto Two this year. I mean, because um, Fabio Dijen Antonio was also on the podium in Valencia. He's now obviously bumped up straight to MotoGP as is Bez and Marco Bezzecchi. Uh, and of course, the red, two Red Bull KTM AO riders. Um, the only podium finishing from Valencia was Augusto Fernandez, who's taking over that AO seat for next year. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things from the MotoGP test that's currently running um, in Jerez is that those guys are on the bigger bikes. Um, you know, do you think, say, from, from Fabio, we should expect um, a Fabio esque kind of uh, you know, impact in, to MotoGP in his first year? Did Gian Antonio? Uh, no. They have it clearly labelled. Yeah, he could be on. He's on the best bike. He is. I I was quite disappointed with the season, to be honest. Thought after his Hareth race that he might go on and actually fight for the championship, but we saw a couple of decent performances. Uh, Still, a lot to prove in my eyes. So, he's where where would you kind of place him in the Pecco Bagnaia Bastianini kind of bracket? I mean, below them, both below them. Right. Yeah. I think we better move swiftly on. I think there was not a particular fan of Fabio. No, I like I like Digi. He's he's a nice guy. Um, making a celebratory T-shirt for a second place, I think, is maybe slightly yes. questionable. Maybe that is something he'll come to look back on and regret in uh, the future. But it depends uh, what bonus payment he was on for that second <laughs> position. Then. But. Uh, you know, we're going to see, those, of course, those four riders depart the class. Um, where does that leave Moto2 next year? Because, you know, let's talk about the Mark VDS team. Augusto Fernandez had a really decent season after a nightmare in 2020. Sam Lowe started the year incredibly strong and then had flashpoints of coming back to his best. Uh, you know, how, how can we see that battle line emerging next year? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um... Yeah, you've got a couple of guys like Kinet, Navarro moving from Boscoscuro chassis over to Calex. Kind of think Kinet could be a name there. Lowe's, I think, would be there. Um, He's I think a rookie teammate next year, of course. Yeah. Well, not so much a rookie, but you know, be Arbolino will be in his second season. Right. Uh, I think Augusto Fernandez will definitely be there. Um, maybe a few other names as well that I'm missing out at the moment. But um, no, I think uh, I think Model Two is going to be quite interesting. Obviously, two of the, the dominant forces leaving uh, means that, you know, there's a, a kind of a vacuum maybe there at the top. So I think, you know, guys like at the moment, guys like Lowe's, Canet, Augusto Fernandez could be, could be quite tasty. Um, Valencia also saw the retirement of Tom Luti, who's moving into an advisory role with CF Modo, the Bristol team. Um, Lorenzo Baldassari, I think, is also out of a ride. I mean, that kind of leaves, I think, Sam Lowe's as the most experienced rider in Moto2 next year. Corsi, I think. Corsi as well. Of he's staying. Yeah. If, if he manages another season. Yeah, he's staying. See if, uh, right. So, you know, you think Lowe's, with that experience, um, you know, would offset the kind of the young verve of Arbolino. But what do you make of his first season? Um, Arbolino. Um, yeah, yeah, patchy, really. Um, Okay, in spurts, a couple of decent performances. Le Mans, Mugello was inside the top six. But after that, I think he was in the top six in Coda. That was about it, really. So, yeah, disappointing, I would say, on the whole. Um, guys like Agura. Fernandez is sort of, you know, you can't really look at him as what normal rookies do. 
but someone like Agura was consistently top 10, pushing for the top six in a lot of races. Albelino was very, very patchy. Um, and from what the team was saying, as early as Jerez, Le Mans, him and his manager were already sniffing around other seats. They thought, this isn't where we want to be. But it seems strange. The intact UP team seems like a decent, well-run outfit. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah, I think he's maybe a bit fortunate to get that Mark VDS seat, but he is talented. He's definitely talented. So I'd like to see what VDS do now because having been arguably one of the top teams, the top team in Moto2 for quite a few years, they've been you know, surpassed by the AIO setup. So let's see, you know, what those two, you know, it's not just a, a question of riders, it's also the way those guys go racing. Um, and speaking of Ayo, we, like we mentioned, we spoke to Aki after the race and he had some really revealing comments about how Remy Gardner came into the team and Aki had to work with him to build that kind of mentality to be world champion. So uh, here, here is the man himself. Aki, can you just try and try to summarize uh, now that the year's over, some of the emotions? I mean, you couldn't have imagined this back in March. Of course, uh, in both categories, this season has been incredible. In other hand, always I need to re remind or I need to repeat and repeat for myself that it's only the work and the best, of course, the, the present or gift or result of the work is always the improvements. And if you can still improve and your team can improve like we were improving now, it's always, uh, always a pleasure. But uh, how was it? Wait a second. Some <laughs> difficult moment. I have talked today too much. <laughs> An emotional moment as well. I don't know. Next question, please. <laughs> Aki, uh, I mean, Remy has come in and immediately been super consistent, fighting at the front of races, on the podium most weekends. I mean, how has he been whenever he arrived in your squad and, and what kind of work did you have to do to make him more champion? Okay, he do it and of course we our job is just some, some fine-tuning and try to... What we are always trying to do in our job is try to get the maximum out from every king, everything and try to find the people for the right position. The things also that you, you, you get the best possible out. That's, that's important in racing and same time try to keep everything simple. But uh, we, the story with Remy started last year in on May during the COVID break, and uh, we started to be in contra contact. First was uh, Wayne contacting me for these things to 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 a little bit help Remy maybe in the future, and and his assistant Lisa in this time, and then I started to be more and more contact with. Uh, Remy and especially when we started to gain the season in Jerez and the next races like in Red Bull Ring, Brono, we sit down every weekend or before the weekend even he was in other team, started to talk about the life and future and I tried to understand a little bit more also that if Remy is right decision for our project and I remember in Red Bull Ring then finally I also explained to our bosses in KTM and Red Bull and, and, and uh, and said to them that I feel that he is the right guy and, and uh, they, they believe same and uh, we closed the deal and of course then we started to work even, even more intensive. I remember that our first talking with Remy was quite face, first face-to-face -face talking when we started to know each other was even quite 
intensive and tough and, and, and emotional. And I don't say that we were fighting, but we had some different opinions. And I was quite clear beginning that I like, I believe you and I like your style and everything. But I think we have to change a lot if we work together about the attitudes and everything. And I see it was he was really technical in this moment talking technical details for me too much much too much to be as a rider and also he was he had some doubts i don't know if he put it himself or people around but some doubts and and facts in his head that he's too heavy and bike is low because he's heavy and this and that actually i was shooting everything down in the first moment when we started to know and, and he was quite shocked but i felt already in that moment that this guy is uh, really strong because I see that okay he was emotional in this moment but finally he accepted everything and he was still ready to start to work and I see okay this is the first good sign and then I a little bit uh, put the handbrake and, 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 and then this was the start and, and then I invite him for the team and, and his new crew and everything and step by step and I have to say that Remy is really really nice character that I really have a place in my heart heart for him and it's really easy to work him in other hand really easy to work him but also you can see all the time how hungry he is how he's ready to sacrifice the things and it's really easy to do the teamwork with him. So Aki how you know um Aki's a, a good guy, isn't he? He's, it's not the easiest of interviews. He doesn't take um, stupid questions lightly. Uh, so you have to go in armed with some, some good material, otherwise it would be a very short uh, interview. But, um, you know, he, I mean, what, what a magician this year. He actually got quite uh, choked up when we spoke to him on, on just the range of achievements that the, you know, the AIA team has reached this year. Yeah, I was amazed uh, that uh, he'd done that because you always associate Aki with being ice-cold, uh, clinical calculated, super grounded. Uh, when we approached him after the race on Sunday, he was there with, uh, I think, Danny Holgado's dad, who is uh, going to be racing in Aki's team next year, spelling out what, what Danny has to do in the next couple of weeks. He has to do this and this and this and this. He was telling one of Jamma Masia's um, minders or friends, spelling out, you know, even in like a moment of great celebration, <laughs> it's like, thinking about next year um, but yeah I guess his achievements this year have been, have been great um, second time I think he's won both Moto3 and Moto2 championships in the same year after 16 with Binder and Zarco and just the, the kind of the dominance of, of both of his guys in Moto2 this year really spoke volumes of uh, his team uh, I also think okay Raul made those comments this week um, that were quite incendiary but before that I think it really spoke um about Aki's management and the atmosphere he's created in that team that those guys weren't slagging each other off every week, you know? Because how often do you have two guys in the same team going for a title and it remains completely amicable? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's never. I, I can't think of a time when it hasn't bubbled over and turned into bitching and sniping and that kind of thing. So I think you have to really say that that, that is an example. How harmonious, and okay, there's obviously tension, but anytime I saw those two guys after a race, they would acknowledge each other, they would shake hands, they would kind of take the piss maybe a bit playfully out of each yeah. other. You have to say that, yeah, having that kind of authority installed in your garage where it's like you don't, you don't do anything to the detriment of this team, that's, yeah. that's quite impressive. So you'd have to say fair play to Aki. 
That seems to be a little bit of a KTM thing because uh, in, if we talk about teammates fighting for the championship, it was there. It was very prevalent in MXGP. Um, you know, in motocross, KTM forged the greatest team ever seen in Grand Prix racing with Tony Cairoli, Jeffrey Hollins, and Jorge Prado. That was 15 world championships combined. And um, in 2018, it was basically just Hurlings and Cairoli going for the for the championship. I think out of 20 races, um, only Clement de Sal and the Kawasaki was the only non-KCM winner out of those two. So it was um, it was tense, you know, it was tense around the team. Um, two riders going for the main prize. Hurlings won most of the races, but then Cairoli was right behind just waiting for a mistake that eventually didn't come. But, uh, you know, I think uh, the KTM management and senior management had um, a little bit of uh, an education then how to handle two top flight athletes going for the big prize. But um, let's talk about another KTM rider now. Well, actually, first, let's go to the race winner, Xavi Ortigas. Um, you know, after everything that was going on with Foggia's, um, you know, touch on uh, Acosta and the crash and the whole kind of Moto2 vibe as well, uh, you know, that was kind of overlooked a little bit. Uh, the Spanish teenager, is that someone that... You know, had a tricky first year, but also we should keep a good watch on for next season. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think aside from Valencia, Artigas didn't have a kind of run of results that would initially make you think that he's one to look out for. But um, a couple of his performances through the year, I mean, I think he crashed out of the first three races, but in each of those first three races, he was running towards the front. Um, and one or two incidents or one or two races like in Austin, I think he got... He was one of the fastest guys there. He could have been on the podium, but he jumped the start. One or two things like that, a place like Austin is tough to go to and learn, and he was one of the fastest guys all weekend. Um, it just makes you wonder why Leopard got rid of him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one that they might come to regret. Tatsuki Suzuki um, has uh, not exactly set the world alight in the last two years. Um so yeah, it's uh, it's kind of strange that they brought uh, Artigas up through the Spanish Championship and then into the World Championship, and now where it seems that he's at a level where he could maybe be competing at the front, he's uh, he's going off to uh, Prustel. So um, CF Moto, the uh, Chinese KTM. Yes, exactly. KTM, right? But yeah, it's kind of different sticker, different co- different livery. Mm. Now, um, a very simple question for you. Has Dennis Onchu learned from his two-race uh, punishment <laughs> over aggressive ridings? It didn't really seem that way. It didn't look like it did it. Um, I saw uh, a colleague of ours, Jarno Bima, um, tweeting like that Onchu's been, been out for two races and he's riding basically every lap as though his championship or there's a world championship dependent on it. Had that kind of vibe. Um, and looking at some of his comments that he was making on Instagram after his two-race suspension or during his two-race suspension, you don't get the impression that he feels that that was justified by any means. He's Have, very contrite. Having someone like Keenan Sofwoglu as well there who came out and said, this is the way you have to race. Um, you have to be super aggressive to make it towards the front. It's not really the correct thing to say, I think, in this circumstance, in this situation. Um, I like Dennis. I think he's a fantastic talent but that race there was a lot of aggression there and um, I thought there were at least two waves of uh, apologies during the race um, you know for cutting a line or coming too close for contact yeah or going outside track limits I mean he eventually got the long lap penalty still could have finished on the podium which showed you just how fast he was but yeah some yeah, yeah it, 
I don't. I didn't give me the impression that he had. He came back with the kind of sufficient levels of uh, <laughs> contriteness. Do we? Do we think that KCM might have another little hand grenade on their in their hands there? Uh, possibly. Um, Maybe not with the arrogance of a Fernandez, but. Um, Andrew, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough to know. Um, you know, they, they say he's a very strong character, um, and you know he's super. Emotionally invested in it, which you obviously want. Um, but you know, you can kind of say old adage: you can teach a, a fast rider to stop crashing, or in Dennis's case, just to chill out a little bit. But you can't teach it the other way around. So, um, yeah, I think I think he can be a, a, a title contender next year. But yeah, his, his aggression sometimes is maybe a bit on the on the limit. Yeah, we have to put some of it down to you for exuberance. I, I can remember it well. Um, Neil, it's been great to talk to you about Moto2 and Moto3 and we're wrapping Valencia and of course the season. Like we mentioned earlier, you've got the after the flag on the last day of MotoGP testing to attend to. So uh, we'll be back next week with the Paddock Pass podcast where I'm sure we'll be talking about that test together with Dave and also um, some superbike news because Steve has been in Indonesia for the final round and of the Top Rack versus Jonathan Ray dispute. So uh, join us again on the Paddock Pass podcast next week. This has been brought to you, fueled even by Elf Mark BDS Racing. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.